Welcome to the Free Life Agents Podcast, where we help real estate agents build a lifestyle they never need a vacation from. Here's your host, Kobe Zen. Okay, welcome back to FLA. This should be number 20, 28, FLA number 28. And we are, uh, we are bringing on another guest who is somebody who I have a connection with. Uh, personally, and I've been working with for a really long time. Super excited about this guest today. He is very knowledgeable in the real estate world and in the real estate market as well. So he knows a lot of uh, information and can give a lot of insights based on the statistics and the market and the economy, which to me is very interesting. But, uh, you know, I just want to introduce my guest a little bit here today, uh, list off some bullet points. So he has flipped over 200 houses here in the Houston market and very a uh, very experienced investor, and he is also the founder of Invested Agents and Invested Equity, which is a fund that he has just started. But without further ado, I want to bring on my guest, my good friend and personal mentor of mine, Chris Bounds. Chris, welcome to FLA. Thanks for having me. What's going on, Kobe? Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited for uh, for for you to be on this uh, this interview, this podcast here. Uh, because we've worked together a lot, and um, you were actually one of the first names that came to mind when I when I started this podcast. So I thought, you know, maybe uh, bring bring Chris on to do this interview because you can really offer uh, just a lot of insights to to our agents and our listeners here. But uh, you know, I introduced you a little bit here um, in the beginning, but if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bit of background on like who you are and how you got started in real estate, feel free to take as long as you want to, you know, we are kind of open forum here. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, just high level overview, real estate fund manager and investment, uh, real estate investor, uh, I flipped around 200 houses. Um, you know, I really, w- once I came up with the 200 number, I, I stopped counting. So I'm um, in, and by flip, some of those are, are rentals. Ultimately got started in real estate way back in college, flipped a few houses while I was in college. Um, the basic definition of, uh, I, I had no job. I really had, I guess I had credit because they sent me credit cards and that was kind of how I funded my first real estate education. Um, flipped four houses, graduated, had a good life, but the thing that gets in the way of a great life is a good life. Um, but when I got married, uh, and, and Jamie, she tells the story a lot better than I do. I dropped this bomb in our lap. We're like married like two weeks or so. And, uh, I was like, hey, babe, I want to flip houses. And she knew I did that in college. Um, and she was a little reluctant at first, but uh, went along with it. And um, ultimately, we didn't flip houses. We actually bought rentals. We both had jobs. We, we didn't really need to flip homes. And um, that proved very lucrative. The, the first deal, actually, that, that we bought ended up being the house that allowed me to go full-time, allowed both of us to go full-time, um, which was in 2015. So... All in all, I've used around $19 million from real estate uh, individual investors or equity partners, private lenders to fund our projects. Total transaction volumes are around $88 million and uh, we're moved into the multifamily space last year and uh, we're just, we just launched a $100 million fund. So we're going to be uh, doing a lot more of the fundraising, a lot more capital uh, deployment to acquire as many units as possible. Yeah. That's awesome. So you have a lot of experience in, in real estate, and I, and uh, you know, I know this. So um, just to just kind of get started here. Um, so when you first started in real estate, uh, was it flipping, 
or did you kind of go on the like the wholesaling route? I think a lot of uh, a lot of new investors kind of get started with with wholesaling. So did you did you get started with just flipping in the very beginning, or did you do something else? Yeah, I mean, wholesaling is definitely a, it's a very easy way to get going because it doesn't require a lot of capital outside of just whatever your marketing costs are. Um, and I mean, you don't necessarily have to have the financing to close on it. Now, and, and I'll, I'll throw out a disclaimer there. Um, be honest and truthful with the people you're working with because you're, you're, you're dealing with their uh, home. And a lot of these folks have sincere problems they're looking to solve and they're looking to you as the expert to solve. So um, if, if it's something like you don't have any ability to actually help them and you're just trying to make a quick buck, hoping while using their maybe unique situation that, that could be painful, maybe financially, um, using that as leverage, um, that I don't necessarily recommend. But um, I, ultimately, we did get started with wholesaling. So I said we, um, so this is me. Back in 05, the very first deal I did was knocking on doors for pre-foreclosures. So the, the foreclosures were increasing steadily all the way up until the crash. This is 2005, I believe, or 2004, and knocking on doors. And uh, I took a real estate course on, on what to do and um, got my first yes, meaning the guy actually opened the door. He didn't yell at me. He didn't cuss me out. And he was like, hey, like, how can you help me? And at that point, I brought the, the, my mentor in and he helped negotiate the deal uh, we did close on it, but then we sold it to another investor. So nowadays, you would call that a whole tail type deal. Um, I don't know if that ver <laughs> verbiage was around back then. The very next deal was a double close, which is basically a wholesale, but I used the back end buyer's money to fund the actual front end seller. Um, third deal was a lease option. And then fourth deal was another lease option. Um, I should note the fourth deal was a subject to rental. Um, so those are the first four deals that I did, uh, all while still, still in college. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask that. So you, you did those deals, you did four deals when you were still in college and I'm assuming they were, they were close together. They weren't like spread out across, like, you know, you did your first deal as, as a freshman and then your, your second deal as a sophomore. No, they were all within like a year time, time frame. Okay. Like I, I'm a senior in college. Um, so yeah, they were all within a year time frame. Right. So they were all within a year time from, they were pretty close together. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, people getting started. And I think you mentioned this as well with your first deals that you worked with a, you worked with a mentor. So do you think that came into play uh, when it came to like, just giving you confidence or do you think like, I guess my question is, do you think when somebody's getting started, especially kind of at that age as well, that they need to be working with somebody who's a little bit more experienced to give them kind of that edge uh, to push them through when it when it comes to as big of a a big of a transaction as as real estate. Yeah, ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bridge the education gap. Now, in 2005, um, YouTube, I, I I believe it was there. It was nothing like it is now. Um, Google was there, but it was nothing like it is now. And so, like, and by nothing like it is now, I'm talking about content that's readily available, high quality content that you can absorb in some form of manageable, organized way. Um, so ultimately, back then, that was still new. And, and ultimately, if, if you want to get educated, you either need to try by fire, you got to do it yourself, figure it out. Or you had to learn from someone which you could either do that in time, maybe you can work with someone or you pay for it. Um, I ended up paying for it, it was 1500 bucks for a weekend boot camp. 
And I, I know there's a lot of stuff out there that it's it's junk, um, money grabs from from gurus or, and whatnot. But um, ultimately, I went in with the approach of, hey, look, like I'm good. I'm just going to do what they say. Like they're they're going to show me something, a system, and so I'm just going to do it. And I did. Yeah. Um, I didn't have these mental blocks of, oh, that, that doesn't work. And, and so I'm the youngest guy in this class. I'm 21 years old, I guess. Yeah. And uh, every, pretty much every single weekend after that class, I drove from College Station, Texas, because I went to a to San Antonio. Because at the time, San Antonio was online. Like, there's not a lot of uh, government databases online at this time. So, but San Antonio, Bear County, they were one of the, First counties in the nation completely online. So I could look up pre-foreclosures from a dorm room. So I would drive around three hours every single weekend. I didn't have the money for a hotel. So I would drive back and then drive back again on Sunday and knock on doors all day. So eight to 10 hours. And I did that for three months straight. Three months straight before I finally got a yes, before I finally got a deal. Um, so now, now, today, do you need to pay for a mentor? I don't know. It really just depends on how you want to fast track your success. Um, I mean, can you find enough information online? I, mean, I put out a ton of content. You're putting out content. There's a lot more folks putting out content. Most of it's free. So at the end of the day, can you figure it out doing YouTube for free? Absolutely. Um, what is a little harder to figure out is all the educational gaps in between the videos. Uh, in between the blogs, things that don't make it in, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it's just, it's hard to really describe everything. Um, so what we see more now, instead of just regular education in the real estate space, we actually see more coaching, which which is something I haven't done, at least in, in any scale uh, capacity for the entire my entire career. Um other than the past couple of years, when I finally enough folks were just asking like, Hey, look, like, can you help me? Can you help me? And so finally we, we were able to create something, um, collaborated with a buddy of mine, Brent Phillips to, to offer that. But, um, it, it's not required, I guess, to, in, in summary, it's not required. It can fast track success, but ultimately, regardless of what you do, it's your responsibility to take the action. And that's where I think most people fail. doesn't matter if they pay for it or, or they want to do their, um, you know, their own research. They're just not willing. Are you willing to like knock on doors every day for three months or every weekend for three months? Like I was, and I got a deal. <laughs> right. So how, uh, how many doors was that? Do you, do you still kind of remember? Was that like hundred or, or 200? No, well, so Google maps did not exist. iPhones didn't exist. Um, so we, we had this folding, like the huge folding maps. Um, so we'd print them out, uh, me and my business partner at the time, we'd, we'd print out all the pre-foreclosures, we'd filter through and find the ones that, uh, that met our criteria. So then the ones that met our criteria, we would uh, look up those addresses on the map and then we put a little dot by it. And then we would figure out what is the like most ef uh, effective route to take to get around the city. And um, so we ended up doing that and then we organized it. So it ended up being anywhere from eight to 12 homes in a day um, for, for, for the metro area, um, which is a lot. I mean, 
but also a big portion of, of the of the day was driving. We just get up early on a Saturday and we get home late on a Saturday. I think there was only one time where we actually stayed in a hotel. I mean, it was probably after the first deal because we, we didn't have any money. Um, so yeah, eight to eight to twelve. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I really, I really like asking that question or just kind of like getting that story because somebody's first deal, especially when they, when they listen to this interview and they do more, do more research into who you are, uh, you know, based on like just your, your overall experience and where you are now, it's really interesting to kind of see how somebody like yourself or, you know, somebody else who's very experienced got started, right? Because everybody starts kind of at that. Well, not everybody starts at the exact same level, but everybody has to start. And everybody has to have their first deal, right? Or, you know, in my case, the first agent or, or whatever it, it could be. And then I think it's very interesting to tell that story because if somebody's, you know, just getting started, that's, you know, very motivational because they can listen to your story and they see that you're, you know, done so many things in the real estate space, but you got started, you know, essentially with no experience driving around in, in San Antonio, uh, almost like just, just gritting it out right so i mean this is something and that I'm anybody also, can I'm do i'm a 21 year old kid knocking on a door to a grown adult saying hey uh i'd like to buy your house like that is just it takes a certain amount of confidence to be able to do that um, yeah. effectively and, and ultimately i mean was it fun um because you know they're already in a stressful situation they don't want to talk to right. you um they, and a lot of a lot of times they're clamming up that's how they got in the situation like they just ignored the problem until it most of the time i mean some, some, some you know there are probably occasions where it's more more of a sudden event but um ultimately i just did it i just did it and you you have to factor in the cost what did that cost me i mean there's normal costs like gas um but it also costs time like i could have been back in college station hanging out with my buddies um going to parties, going to bars, um, all of those, at least in a temporary standpoint, might've been more fun. <laughs> um, I just, I, I knew where I wanted to go and I knew I didn't want to take a traditional path to where I'm going to graduate and go get a job and work the corporate ladder. Like there was zero, I had zero intention of ever doing that. Uh, it was just me. So this was a, a good way to uh, kind of pay the, pay the path for you know, where I eventually wanted to go. Exactly. You have to, you have to pay the price now and make sacrifices now in order to, to live the life that you, you actually really want to do. And that's what I think most people are, are struggling with is that they're drifting through life because they don't have an intention of where to want to go. And then they just take whatever is the least passive resistance. And then, you know, like other people, maybe like people you went to college with, they, they went to parties and then they're not, they're not in the you know, they're not in the same position as, as you are. Um, but and, and, uh, and yeah. to, 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 to comment on that, it's okay if you want to party like that for that, that's okay too, D depending on what they want. Um, it, it's just ultimately where you are is a direct result of all your actions prior. Like it's just, it's just true. So there's nothing wrong with folks that want to party and, and they're okay doing the corporate ladder thing. Like, and, and, most of the buddies that, that I was close with, like, as far as I know, they're, they're very successful in what they're doing. It, it just wasn't for me. I mean, I was not, I, I would be absolutely miserable if I had to sit in a cubicle all day for eight hours a day and do that, I don't know, uh, 50 weeks out of the year with my two weeks vacation. Like um, that would, uh, 
there's not many worse things I can think of uh, in my mind outside of being like a POW and be tor- being tortured. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't know. The, 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 they say an entrepreneur is happy to give up a 40 hour a week job to work 60 hours a week uh, on their own business. Um, and that that's me. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's right. And, you know, people have different goals and uh, you just have to, you just have to be able to, to choose your own goals. And that's, that's pretty important. And uh, yeah, direct result of, of what you've done in the past. So shifting gears a little bit here uh, with this interview, um, we told your story of how you got your first deal, how you got started. And I think it's very interesting. It's very relevant to anybody who's listening to, you know, an educational podcast or, you know, just listening to somebody's story. Cause it's, it's, really fun to kind of see the glamour but you have I think it's more interesting in my opinion to see where somebody started and getting as much into detail as possible but shifting back to the glamour right so what you're doing now so you're also a licensed uh, you're also a licensed real estate agent you're actually a, a top producing agent an icon agent here at eXp Realty um, talk a little bit more about you know kind of because you work with sellers a lot and that's that's something that you know I always default to when I when I uh, kind of like think about you is like you you are a master at talking to sellers and helping homeowners solve their solutions. So having your real estate license, how did that kind of, how did that change your, your business from just being a, you know, being a flipper, being an investor and what are, what are you doing now, you know, kind of in your business or what have you done in, in the residential single family space with a license that has kind of really changed your business? Yeah. Interestingly, I way before I ever owned a personal house, you know, I, I'd already bought multiple houses. Yep, yep. Um, cause I mean, naturally I, in, in college, I, I didn't own a house, but I had bought four investment properties, mm-hmm. moved to Houston, got a sales job, um, did really well with that. And, um, I didn't really do anything in real estate, uh, for in, until about 2010, 2011. Um, then we, then I got married and we started buying rental properties. So ultimately I was a one trick pony because that, that was all I knew going back to the education gap. I only knew one thing, and that's because I went to a boot camp that taught me one thing. So when my wife and I started buying rental properties, we did the only thing I knew, knocking on doors for pre-foreclosures. Um, what, what I didn't realize at the time was the pre-foreclosure game, um, it, it was much different in Houston, and also it was much different post-2011 uh, than it was 2005. So... I had to switch gears. I had to find more education, which that came through going to networking events. And I ended up meeting a guy named uh, Eddie Gant. He owns a large, um, like one of the top hard money um, companies in uh, in Houston or, or Texas. So um, I would always go to these networking events and I would try to ask one or two questions. I would come in with intention, go into networking events with purpose, um, and I'm an introvert, so I have to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. Um, so I would go with purpose to ask one or two questions, and I would do it consistently. And then at one point, I asked um, Eddie a, a question at his event. And I was like, hey, should I get my real estate license? Because he had one. And paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, if you, you want to make this business your profession, you want to be a professional, then you need to make it official. Like, you need to get your license. It's never going to hurt you. It will only add more options that you have available. So didn't get my license, but I'm still a one trick pony. I buy houses for cash. That's it. That's the only business proposition I presented to homeowners. And uh, when I go back and look at it, 
and, and now and realize like the hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually, it's probably ends up being, uh, it's got to be seven figures and commissions that I left off the table. Because if I went to someone's house, and they were a, they were a seller, they were a serious seller, they were just not going to sell at a price that made sense for me and the investor. Um, I had the ability to help them, but I chose not to. Even though I was a licensed real estate agent, I was sitting in the living room saying, hey, I would love to sell my house. Not can sell it for that price. I, need, I, I want closer to retail. And I could have helped them, but I didn't. Um, in 2018, I, I put the math to uh, you know that problem. And it came out to, in 2018 alone, the number of homes that I sat in the living room and made an offer on, but did not buy the house. And they went on to sell their house on, on, on the retail market, on MLS, it would have been a $200,000 gross commission uh, in my pocket if I only converted 30% of them. So I was like, because I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything. What I didn't know conversion ratios for realtors. I knew it for investors. So I was like, 30%? I mean, if I'm a horrible at converting retail leads, like, that seems obtainable. Um, knowing now that good listing agents will convert 70, 80, 90% of their appointments, like, man, the, the commissions I left off the table. So ended up switching, switching the um, business proposition more to a consultative approach. It's now, hey, I'm here in your house. I'm here to help you find the best solution to get your house sold. Now, maybe that's selling it as is off market, quick and easy. We don't need to list it, no showings. Maybe it's a more traditional approach, putting it on the market, making sure we get you the highest possible price from, uh, from the public market. Maybe it's an option in between, which could involve owner's finance, uh, subject to um, working with some iBuyers and, and that sort of thing. So ultimately, when I did that, I, I, I realized that we can convert more leads and also realized that the seller that's going to sell as is, you cannot convince them to go sell it on the retail market. They just don't want to. They already know they can use a realtor. That's not a new thing. You're not introducing some new idea. So there, I was not going to cut my own investment foot off by suggesting the realtor route. What I really was going to do is affirm that is not an option for them and then really hone in on the problem of off-market solutions. Same with a retail client. Someone who wants to sell retail, you're not you're not going to convince them to sell at seventy percent, you know, below market value. Like it, 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 these these folks typically, they're not motivated financially. The home is usually in fair condition, maybe just cosmetic updates. So I'm not going to be able to convince them to sell as is, but I can use that as is as a carrot to bring the lead in, have a conversation, build dialogue, build trust, and convert them as a listing. Um, and then, of course, there's some middle ground too that you know either, either side may be interested in, uh, just depending on their circumstance. So that that was the transition that I made, and actually ended up joining EXP right when all that was going on too. And when I think about, man, the, the, the stock I would have accumulated uh, had I even known about those kind of options uh, or, or, or working things that way years before, it would have been quite uh, quite lucrative. So, 
Yeah. And uh, so, so we're going to talk a little bit more about your decision with EXP a little bit later here in the interview. We like to save that for the end. But um, so I do have a question for that. So you, when you got your license, you took a more of a consultative approach. And I've, I've actually been, you know, I've, I've been kind of a, a part of that for a little bit when I, when I first got started. And I kind of got to see the behind the scenes of how that worked, but I never knew what was going on essentially before that. So when you weren't licensed. So what change, I guess, did you see uh, when you were kind of now giving your sellers more options versus in the past? I mean, did you just go, did you just go kind of go into their, not, not necessarily like going to their living room, but did you just take it, take the approach as, Hey, I'm, I'm here to, to buy with a cash offer. And there's, there's really no other option here. So, uh, you know, now that you have your license, what, what is it like, what do you say to them and how do you, how do you actually, what, what change did you see happening in your, in your, in your business? Not just from like a financial standpoint, but from like an ease to talk to a homeowner. Yeah, if that I, makes I sense. didn't have to be the person against them anymore. Like now, now I'm oh. their, I'm their, I'm not their agent. I was very careful to make sure that right. those disclosures are, 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 are made unless we go down that path. You know, hey, I am a licensed real estate in Texas, and uh, now I'm not representing you, and we can talk about that if, if it makes sense. But I am here, just kind of show you the different options and see what the best option for you is to get your house sold. How does that sound? Um, so the the biggest change was uh, I got cussed out a little bit less okay. <laughs> um, because if all you're trying to do is get their two hundred thousand dollar house for one hundred forty thousand or one hundred twenty thousand or whatever, um, like that can be offensive to some folks. Um, if you're trying to help them get the, uh, you know, their house sold in a, in a way that makes sense for them, then now you're kind of partners. Um, now again, going back to the, the real estate license and disclosure, you got to make sure you're, you're disclosing that and, and they know if you're actually representing them or you're not, uh, depending on which, you know, how the transaction is going to go. But I, I could still come across more of, hey, let's collaborate and come up with a solution together. And ultimately, just through questions, I'm they're going to lead themselves down the path that they want to go. I know what those questions are. I've got I've got them prepared, and of course, I'm, I'm you know through repetition, you see patterns. You realize like whenever they're when when they're the same things like I hate this house, uh, or I've got to go back and uh, go back fly back to New York inherited the house got to flew back to new york next week um i don't know when i can come back and uh this is just so stressful okay well you can start some see some patterns that hey maybe the retail option is, isn't going to be the best fit for them and you could further um uh test those theories too so uh it seems like going back to a, a book never split the difference uh by chris um chris voss you can use certain labels to test those series so it seems like you'd rather list your home as soon as possible well i mean if they're in no way intending on listing it and they're like no no no, no I, I, i'm hoping you can buy it okay all right well i mean now i know i i know more information i know how to help them a little bit better um or if it's um well i might if i, if I don't get the price i want okay so it seems like price is really important to you so we can just have those questions and have that dialogue, walk down the path and whatever path they choose, like I'm going to be able to help them. Exactly. So it's more about finding out what they want because now you have a, a plethora of ways to solve their problem versus just going in with one way to solve the problem and trying to convince 
Because that's I think that's what most, if whether you're an investor, a wholesaler, or, or an agent, that's what most most you know most people do is they have one solution, and then they try to essentially push convince the seller, the homeowner, that that solution is the best option. Um, do you do you agree with that or? Yeah, I mean because most investors aren't well, wholesalers they're just trying to type a contract, so. They don't really care what happens. Right. They just, I mean, by and large, um, you know, there are definitely some good wholesalers out there, but by and large, they're just trying to make money on the spread. Uh, so ultimately, they want to tie it up so they can get it sold. They don't really have any vested interest because they have zero intention yeah. to ever even buying it. Um, ultimately, what I wanted to make sure is that I had a solution that could be a better value add to the to the end customer like the homeowner above all my competitors so i knew what the wholesalers could do um and it actually made it really easy when when they're like well i've got this other offer from abc company um that's something like i don't know thirty thousand dollars more than what i can what i would pay for as a rental and a rental that type of um calculation is usually like the highest value you're going to get outside of a retail buyer so when they're giving me some astronomical number i'm just like okay um uh you know i'll start asking them questions about that offer about the company about the contract so it seems like you've um you you've looked over their offer you know they've sent it to you in writing well no it's just verbal okay now we have something have they sent it to you in writing so you, you you can figure out where they are in that process and i can help them watch out for landmines so the landmines I'll help them watch out for are earnest money and option period. Those are the, those are the top two, earnest money and option, option period, because I know wholesalers do not want to put earnest money down, or if they do, only hundred bucks. And they definitely don't want to put option money down, or if they do, it's like 10 bucks, hundred bucks. Um, so I'll just throw landmines out there. So, um, you know, Mr. And Ms. Seller, I mean, you're probably aware earnest money typically see one to two percent of the purchase price um and then, and then option period um, usually seven to ten days um, now some wholesalers they want to get 30 60 90 days option period because they just want to tie up your contract so they can give them time to sell it to someone who's really going to buy it like me so i'm planting these seeds these landmines in their head so when they see it they recognize it call me yeah that 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 you know you did exactly what you said you know it was a 60 day option period and i asked him about that and blah 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 so it creates mistrust with competition more trust with me yeah that's actually a very a very good strategy because you know in a competition right so you now have more ways of winning than your than everybody else you're competing against right so you have you have now i think three or four different options, right? Depending on, or maybe even more than that, uh, which is how, to, how, how, how a homeowner can actually get rid of the property through you and what you guys do versus somebody else who they can only do this one thing. So they're, all they're trying to do is trying to get them to see the tunnel vision of why that's the best option versus in your, in your case, you're get out, you're actually telling them why the different other options are, are you have to look out for, like, what are the things you have to look out for? Because these are like, these are the only possible options to sell your house. And you cover essentially all the bases, so uh, you, you can just come in. And, and you can do that on the retail them. side too. You can do the, if they're talking to multiple multiple agents, um, and it's like a motivated seller um, 
you know, it would be a good investment property they're, they're still considering putting on, on the retail market. So it seems like you're talking with an agent that they can guarantee the price that you're going to get. No agent's going to guarantee the price that you're going to get. But some agents will have a buyout clause, meaning if they don't sell it within the next days, they'll actually buy it at a certain price. Very few agents do that, um, but some do. And th that, that gives them, that, that's just because they're very confident in their ability to market, list the price, market it, and get it sold. So, um, but, but most agents won't do that. So if I could say something like that, that adds more value for me. Um, and then there's like iBuyers that's completely off market. And most iBuyers will pay far more than what any wholesaler will pay. It'll be less than retail, more than wholesale. So that, that I found that to be a good solution for folks that they want it sold quickly. They want a really high price. They don't have to have retail. Um, so they're still a little bit flexible on the price and they still prefer to sell it off market. They really don't really don't want to list it. So I could go get quotes from the open door and offer pad and they pay referral fees to agents. Um, and ultimately it's an option and I'll lay out the options. Like in certain circumstances, if they're really open, um, like they really want to explore all options. I'm like, look, if you sell it as is cash, this is what you take home. If you sell it to um, open door and offer pad, well, we got their offers right here. This is what you take home. If you've put it on the retail market, this is potentially what you'll take home if you get uh, you know, the, the price that I think it's worth. And then you're factoring how many days that takes. Um, and then you know, other X factors, like with the retail side, there may be a little bit more showings, um, maybe some prep work we have to do in advance, stuff like that. So going back to the consultative approach. Now for the investor that does not want to be a retail agent, and, and really, I, I, I'm one of those. Um, that would be a little selective on, on the types of listings I would take. And um, you know, I would refer other you know, business down to agents on the team. Just have a, have a listing partner. Have an agent that, whether it's on your team, like with EXP, we have our, our, our teams. Um, or if you're not an agent, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult because you can't collect commission. Um, I would just suggest get licensed, but um, unless you own a brokerage, because you don't have to be an agent to own a brokerage, you just have to be an agent to collect commission. Um, so I'd say if you're not an agent, get licensed. Um, it just adds options. But uh, if you are an agent, you don't want to handle the retail side, just work closely with a listing agent that can help you. Um, knowing that if you don't lock up the deal when you're in the living room, and you try to just do a handoff, there is going to be an extra drop-off rate because they, they don't have the relationship with that other person and the relationship with you. It's always going to be better if you can close the deal. Right. And I think this is something you've, <clears throat> you've mentioned to me before as well, is that when you're referring to somebody, you lose, you now lose control of the, the process or you, you are now no longer in control of the sales process. And yes. it's up to the, yeah. Yeah. The yeah. I mean, yeah you, you lose the control, but there's also like, Getting a hold of, especially if you're, you're marketing to motivated sellers, actually getting them on the phone by percentage of your overall marketing list, it's pretty difficult. Um, so when you, when you get them on the phone and when you get all the way down the line, by percentage of the ones where you're actually in their living room and negotiating, it's a very small percentage of, of leads. And the ability or, or to have a greater than 50% drop-off rate, meaning that other agent never even talks to them 
they don't answer, they don't reply to messages, they don't, they don't reply to emails. Like that's a, it's a lot of wasted opportunity. It's just so much better that when they're hot, convert them. Like walk out with a contract to buy it or list it. Just walk out with a contract. Um, do everything you can to when you can solve their problem, when, when that solution has presented itself, get it in writing, get it under contract, move forward, because ultimately that's what they want. Um, if you're doing trying to do a warm handoff, it's just know that you're going to be losing a greater than 50%, uh, probably greater, probably 70 plus percent um, of those leads. So it's just better if you convert them. Right. And is that, is that what you've done as well? Is that why you, you just, you, you like to list your, your own, uh, your own leads rather than just. Yeah. Because our warm handoff, we lost a hundred percent. So when I say greater oh, okay. than 50%, greater than 70%, I, I'm referring, I've, I've talked with some other eight um, investors that have done this and they've had some con um, conversion, but there was a, there was a, a recent one, uh, a guy in Florida and uh, you know, I, I've told him about this and we've had a lot of dialogue, you know, over a span of probably a year or so and he was like yeah you're, you're right like you know the agent on the team like they're not they're not converting anything and i was like so he ended up getting his license and um coming on board the team so right um you know yeah that's you can't <laughs> so you've lost a hundred percent of the leads that you've referred out is that is what you were you're referring to that are referred out using that, that process now i okay. have referred yeah. folks um right. retail direct now but they were you those type of leads were typically already retail they retail call me hey i'm thinking about selling my house and um you know those you know are like hey you gotta i'm, I'm gonna put you in contact with so-and-so they're going to be able to help you out. But those are different. I'm talking about the outbound marketing that called me. Right. And then now I had to introduce a third party that they didn't yeah, know about yeah. before. That, that, that is tougher. Yeah, it's, it, you're, it's, I believe it's, it's just complicating the process for yep. the seller. They want an easy solution. They want the least passive resistance like we were talking about earlier, right? So this is something that's universal to everybody. We're all looking for the, the, the least passive path of resistance so if you're introducing a third party uh it, it complicates the process and muddies the waters so uh but yeah i know 100 uh of not converting i can't really get higher than that so that's something to keep in mind right to and, move and the, the, to, to um go one step uh, further than that by introducing new solutions so if you go in only with a as is cash offer, that doesn't work. Then you introduce a new solution like retail. That interrupts the process too. Because now you've give, given them new information. They don't know anything about it. They haven't even considered it. Or they haven't considered it with you. And it also can build a little bit of mistrust. Like, well, I don't know. I, I thought you could actually help me. And now you're saying you can't, but you can do this other thing. So we've lost deals because of that. And then where they're like, I'm... Actually, one lady, I actually got her back on the phone to understand why she backed out. Um, we were going to go with an iBuyer and we were able to get her more than she wanted. And ultimately she backed out and she directly said the process got confusing. Directly. So at that point, I was just like, okay, we've got to simplify it. So that's why I have a consultative approach where I'm not necessarily introducing anything new. We're just having a conversation. Um, everything's kind of laid out at the same time.
Right. And like from the, from the seller's perspective, it can almost feel like a bait and switch where you're calling them. Right. Yeah. You're calling them from a percent, like you're, you're the first thing you say like, Hey, I can buy your house. And then like a week later, you're, you're now introducing the idea of listing it. And when they never wanted to work with the realtor in the first place. So it can definitely feel like that. And um, so, I mean, now that I guess the approach is you're, you're not pushing any options. It's just, Hey, we can do these things. And uh, it's, 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 it's your choice essentially, instead of, you know, going in there and, and introducing yourself as something. And then, like you said, you're, you're not able to solve the problem. You're kind of passing him off to somebody else. Right. And that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of what a wholesaler does. Right? Yeah. And think about it. I mean, the, the amount of deals that you're going to get off market, um, I mean, off market deals, it's been said three to 5% of the total, total overall transactions, maybe a little bit more if you count iBuyers. Um, but if we go with that, um, that, that means there's a significantly vast number of opportunities that are on market that you could be capitalizing on. And all that can fund your budget to give you, help you buy more market share where you can get the deals you want, convert the retail leads that, um, that don't make sense, either whether it doesn't make sense for you or, or them. So say you're doing it at scale and you pick up an extra 10 listings. Well, if the average retail price for your market is 300,000, 3% commission, what is that, an extra 90 grand or so um, grows. So it's not bad, right? <laughs> and if you're yeah. not the one doing it, you give those leads to a listing agent, maybe you take 50%, makes your 45 grand. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of solutions to that. So um, I guess the moral of the story is to get your real estate license if you're an investor um, moving yeah. forward because I don't see any, and I had been on the podcast last week as well. There's, you know, there's no, and we discussed this as well. So there's no, uh, there's no um, downside to it. Essentially, you're not. It's not too much of a time investment on your end. It's definitely not a money investment, especially if you come from an investing background. Yeah. You know, the expense well, I mean, of the time potential downsides could be you have continuing education. I mean, you got to get the license itself. That yeah. takes time. Um, depending on what state you're in, some are easier than others. And yet, you do have continuing education. Um, and then you've got the disclosures, but most people say don't get your license because it's going to inhibit you um, from, from investing. And, and that's just completely not true. Ultimately, you can't defraud any someone anyway. Um, so you can't break the law to buy a house. The only extra things that I really have to do is disclose. But, but again, they already know most of this information anyway. All I'm doing is building trust. Like I'm not some guy who took a weekend boot camp to try to tie up your property so that they can go sell it to someone else and make twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars as a wholesale fee. I'm actually a licensed real estate agent. I've got a, a background check by the state of Texas. I have a certain code of ethics that I have to uphold to keep my license. And if I did anything wrong or illegal or unethical, there's a whole commission dedicated to right. investigating those type of cases for real estate agents. So I'm building that confidence, that trust. Um, and of course, I have a whole new set of tools. Reasons why you don't want to get a license, if you're never going to do a retail transaction, including your own business, if you're just never going to do that, um, and you have no intention of doing that in the future. And you have no intention of like building a team or a brokerage. Which basically now all the people we have left, if you're in real estate, you're probably just a passive investor, meaning you're loaning your money out to investors or you're loaning your money out to or investing passively in equity. I mean, 
probably doesn't make sense for them. But if you are active and you are going to be active for a while uh, and you are going to make a career out of it, um, get licensed. For sure, for sure. And um, kind of shifting a little bit again. So uh, that was that whole conversation we just talked about was definitely just on the kind of the single family space, right? The single family uh, retail uh, investing space. Um, so now you're you're moving into you just mentioned you met, uh, started a hundred million dollar uh, fund. So that's syndication, uh, I believe, uh, for apartment complexes or, or considered. Well, it, it's a fund. So um, all I mean, all funds are syndications, but not all syndications are funds. Um, so the, to, to clarify, a syndication typically is a identified asset, maybe a single asset, usually. Um, it could be a portfolio of one, two, or three assets. Um, they're typically close-ended. Uh, so they have a dedicated asset and also a dedicated timeline, and then they wrap up. Um, a fund can also be close-ended, um, but it typically has a little bit more leverage uh, uh, and a little bit more variety to it. Um, the one we just started is an evergreen fund, so it's open in perpetuity, which gives us a lot of the benefits um, a lot of benefits that we can offer to investors that traditionally you only see in REITs while still having all the advantages of a syndication of private equity, such as equity ownership, tax benefits, um, and, and such. So, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess two questions on that really quick. It's just one, uh, any particular reason or any particular benefit for moving into that the fund space versus the single family space. And the second one would be uh, what are some new things you have to learn to make that transition and yeah. how, how should someone go about that? So uh, over the years, use around 19 million and mostly from individual private lenders um, on, on occasion, equity partners um, to do the deals we've done the 200 or so yeah. single families. And uh, there was, there was a small apartment complex that, I uh, did early on in my career and then um, a couple smaller multifamily like duplexes too. And then um, the 384 unit that I JV'd on, I'm a, I'm a small partner in that uh, that we did last year. So there's that. Now moving into ultimately just wanted to scale. And the original thought was, hey, we're going to sell scale single family. Um, and it, it has some extra unique challenges outside of just ridiculously low inventory. <laughs> Uh, which uh, multifamily has it too, but um, with single family scaling, um, scaling that business, uh, I think would have been a lot easier back in the 2015, 2018 time period. Um, it, in, the, in the time we were, I was going through this process, which is really 2020, um, 2020, 2021. I'm, I'm starting to explore it more. I'm following folks that I, I know from masterminds and just friends I met along the way who have moved into mobile home parks or self-storage units or multifamily and commercial and land development. So I've followed them. I've, I've seen what, what, they, what they've been doing, had conversations with them. And then when one of those folks, you know, mentioned the Lake Forest deal in Daytona Beach, Florida, um, it was just right timing. So I, I had a couple of things that I had been doing my homework during this whole time while still running the single family business. And thinking like, hey, how can I add more value? Now I'm doing less deals because I'm trying to hold more single families. And now all my private lenders, they're saying, hey, 
I've got money. Like, when can you put it to work? I'm like, well, I'm just not buying as many houses. And um, so when that deal came available, you know, I pitched it to some of them. I was like, hey, this looks really good. Um, well, you know, what do you think about it? And they had questions and, and a couple of them got in. And even the ones that didn't, they were just like, not right now. But they were always like, hey, how's it going? How's it going? How's it going? And, and I knew that would happen. Um, and at that point, we started looking into like, hey, if we wanted to scale this, like, what would it look like? And I wanted to make sure that I could build something that I can gr that can grow with the overall vision. So but if I bring it back to a CRM, early in, in my real estate investing career, how to get a CRM. Everyone was using Podio. I went and looked at Podio, hated it. Absolutely hated it. It's a lot different now than it is it was back then. But I was like, this thing's a piece of crap, even if you pay for it. A lot of people use the, the free version. I'm like, this is just horrible. Um, and ultimately, I narrowed it down. Like, if you want to grow, you need to get a nice platform that you can grow into. Salesforce and Zoho. I ultimately chose Zoho, even though they're, they're both similar. And I, I still use it to this day. Um, it's been hugely powerful for everything that we've done from tracking leads to conversions to reporting. Um, you know, I can go in there and see, pick a private lender and see every single transaction that lender has given us and uh, track all the interest payments paid. And it's just it's phenomenal. So same thing with the fund. They're like, most folks in, in a most painless space, they're doing just syndications. They're one-off um, you know, investment vehicles bring investors on, do the deal, they wind up the deal, exit, pay the investors back. And it's an ongoing process and it's very effective. Um, but my experience working with investors, a lot of them, they just did not want their money back. Um, not all of them, but there's a lot of them. It's either IRA money or they just don't necessarily need it. They just want a monthly check, quarterly check, an annual check. Um, other than that, they just want you to keep it growing. And that type of setup just wasn't available. Uh, you know, if I started a traditional syndication. So that's why we went with the fund model to build something long-term and sustainable. Um, that's why I put the $100 million tag on it. It doesn't mean I have $100 million. That's going to take time to raise. Um, and it, it's okay if it takes, if it takes 10 years. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really worried about it. I think we can fill it much faster than that. But ultimately, it's... I had to look at the multifamily space and say, how can I create the most value? Do I want to go compete with folks who have better relationships with brokers and they've been building those relationships for the last 10 years and try to get better deals? Do I want to be a property manager? Do I want to be an asset manager? Do I want to be an overall operational uh, operations manager? Do I want to be a capital raiser? And um, ultimately, it, it seemed with, with my skill set and track record with money raising and doing the deals before, the, the best value that we could provide um, high quality operators was capital, raising capital. Same thing with our investors. I mean, had the track record, um, perfect track record with fundraising and work with investors. So um, it was how can we solve, uh, solve problems for investors, giving them high quality risk adjusted returns with options and benefits that they don't see normally in the marketplace. And then for experienced operators, how can we solve their problem 
of not necessarily having to raise money or uh, being able to confidently get better deals because they already have a check that they can write. They don't have to syndicate. Um, so that, that's ultimately how we came across the Invested Equity Housing Fund. Yeah, that's awesome. And you said that uh, you said that you had you've had a history 100% of paying back your investors, right? Is that what is that what Correct. you were alluding to? Correct. I just want to know, like, how is that very common in the industry, or you guys are, are a positive anomaly? Uh, I mean, I I I hear, and this is just because I'm I'm involved. Um, right. I, I mean, I hear the horror stories. It's not it's not a lot, but um, it's a small community. And uh, you start talking with a couple of private lenders uh, and they usually have a pretty good ear to the ground too. Like the ones that are, that are regulars, they're not just yeah. uh, the, the one-off the, um, private lender, but they, th- there's a case of a guy, he gives six figures and I forget what the number is. It's a high six figure number, boom, gone, complete fraud, absolute fraud and nothing they can do about it either. Absolutely nothing they can do about it unless they just want to hire a hitman and 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 go that way. This is <laughs> gone. Um, so that stuff happens really in, in from a private investor, private um lender standpoint, it's hard to it's probably impossible to 100 percent foolproof that from happening to you right. outside of working with experienced operators with a brand and a reputation that they're willing to protect. So of the 200 deals that we've done, I've lost money on some. My investors got paid 100% of principal, 100% of interest owed. So I'm willing to do that. Not everyone is. Some folks that either because they just really screwed up and they don't have the money or whatever, they're willing to... um, run and um that's it's definitely scary so that 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 puts extra um uh it should put extra caution for investors or passive investors to do their due diligence due diligence on the operators or the the fund managers or whatever before they invest um i'm just confident in my track record yeah no i mean i think that I think what you mentioned is like that was a complete fraud. The one that the person that lost was like a six figure number. Uh, but I guess like the uh, the one I was kind of the examples that I was referring to was the one that you were you, you mentioned later, which is people who are just not paying back their investors, whether they're, they're running out of money. They weren't trying to lie to them in the beginning, but they just were either incompetent or greedy, I guess would be the other. Yeah, which that happens. Now the market's been really, really good. So you could screw up a lot and still make money. Um, It's just if the market's ever sideways, shaky, volatile, um, you know, the risk on those type of operators uh, is definitely elevated. Um, And and that's kind of the market we're in right now. And I'm very bullish on residential real estate going forward. But I think it's it's more important now to make sure that the operators you're working with have the track record um, to, to show for it. But ultimately, if it came down to someone who can't pay back their private lender, um, th- there is a certain risk that comes with it. But do I 100% fault the operator? Um, yes. However, 
they if 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 they if they truly have the integrity uh, their brand integrity and all that they need to be doing everything they can to pay them back like they got equity in the house they need to get an equity loan they they got to go get a second job or they need to work with them do not shut off communication um that's only going to make it worse um there's I mean, I, I've told lenders when I've lost money on deals, and but I'm paying them back. Like, and they still loan to me because uh, they know that, that I was still good for it. So, if you treat your investors well, even when problems arise, um, actually, here's a good case. There's one deal. It was a flip. We still own it. Um, we're not getting the price we want. And so, instead of selling it for a loss, we just say, "Hey, well, let's just rent this thing." And um, it's turned out really well we'll probably end up selling it um next year because the equity but um i had the loan on it went to go refinance it the appraisal came back even lower than expected and like crap so i was going to end up having to come out of pocket a huge amount of money to pay off the private lender and so i so i asked him hey look do it um it's not gonna be fun but if, if you're okay with it would you mind just holding it as a second and i'll continue to make monthly payments Actually, I wasn't even making monthly payments to him. His, his was accrued. I was like, so um, I'll actually just catch you up and I'll make monthly payments. And he was fine with it. Um, so just talk with him. Try, try, I mean, if you get in those types of circumstances, talk with him, figure it out. There, there was a, I was a lender on this one deal. I was a, a small lender. It was me and I think one other guy. Um, so we both want the money. And the dudes, and I'm, I was the um, almost like, project supervisor and i told the guy i was like look your plan for this house sucks um like <laughs> you need to do a lipstick on a pig get in get out make your money and he wanted to do an hgtv like remodel uh and he had a he had his contractor as a business partner which i think is always a bad idea and um so ultimately he screws it up his relationship with his contractor goes south and like he can't finish it and he's like 90% done. And that 90% isn't even like the best work. So we, we, now he was maintaining communication though. So we weren't happy, but he was maintaining communication. And so basically we just had to sit down with him or the other partner had to sit down with him. It's like, look, here's your options. One, we get foreclose on you and make your life miserable. Two, you can sign this document and we'll just set it aside. We'll use it if we have to, but otherwise you're going to let us have full control over the operations now so we can get this thing sold. And ultimately that's what he did. He was okay with that. And we got it sold. We got all of our principal back. And I think maybe some interest, but it was nothing when you consider the time we spent on it. Um, and ultimately I have, I have a positive relationship with that investor or that investor. Not really gonna loan him money any, anymore. But he did the best he could. When the problems arose, he just made mistakes that were, he, he was too inexperienced. Um, so. Yeah, no, definitely. But I mean, it's good that you still have a positive relationship with him. And that's, I think that's what people, people want moving forward. It's not complete, complete burned bridges. Um, it's, it's that, that's like a really, uh, a positive thing as well. Yeah, uh, he was willing to own up to it. Yeah. He was willing to right. own up yeah. to it. And collaborate with us to get the problem solved, which we wanted our money back. Um, I mean, that, and that's always the number one thing for any investor. 
money back first. They want a principal uh, protection first, then make money. Um, so you definitely want both, but if you can only choose one, I just want my money back. Right. Yeah. I think, I think from a, from a lender's perspective, that's all, that's kind of like all that matters, right? Or sometimes that they just want their, from their perspective, they just want to make sure that they're getting taken care of. So, yep. um, and uh, so you mentioned this uh, just a, a little bit and it wasn't, we didn't elaborate on it, but I want to elaborate on it now. Um, do you think, uh, so there's been a lot of talk obviously with market and what's going to happen to it. Um, and I, I kind of know what you're, well, your opinion on this on this but I, I do want to have you share it as well it's like do you think there will be a repeat of recession 2008 uh here coming up in 2022 2023 even maybe even dragging it out for a little bit longer so what do you think yeah. is going to happen with the market 100 no on the 2008 scenario so that it was a different set of circumstances we had over leverage uh where basically anyone who had a pulse could get a loan we don't have that today we had homes underwater. We don't. We we don't have that today. We we have historically high equity in homes. Um, so those two circumstances caused a spiral out of control of defaults that ultimately allowed um, you know help financial or it led to financial institutions failing. So it was a financial collapse. Now that financial collapse had extra domino effects that ended up crushing the real estate market. We just don't have that today. So we have historically low inventory that has caused home prices to rise at a pretty good rate over the last several years. Um, beyond that, the, the low inventory, we have high demand, high demand from millennials. Like we're millennials right now, the, they previously were the largest demographic. And they're right now in their prime home buying age. Behind them is Gen Z. They are the largest generation in American history now, even more than millennials. And both millennials and Gen Z are significantly larger than Gen X. The Gen Z, they're just starting to turn like 21. I mean, they're basically just starting to get into the home buying or the, the home or uh, resident market. I mean, they'll be renters um, for, for a while. So that is a huge amount of demand that's coming into the market that already has low inventory. And that low inventory is getting a little bit of relief right now because of the interest rates. Um, but it also has, it's a double-edged sword. Interest rates has gone up which is pulling some buyers out, but it's also pulling some sellers off the market too, because they realize, hey, look, you know, it's probably not gonna get the best price that I could have a few months ago. Depends on the market. Because um, so I think uh, NAR mentioned it was like 20% year over year decline in pending listings for June. So inventory is tricking up a little bit, but it's not, not really a lot. Like six months of inventory is normal. We were below one. Like all this was actually going on before COVID. COVID actually made it worse. That put us like less than one month of inventory, which is, which is why we had insane bidding wars. Um, so now, depending on the market, maybe anywhere between one and a little over two months of inventory. And um, I forget what the national average is, but it's still way below six. So we have a lot of demand. We have low inventory. 
And then we have, uh, we don't really have any promise right now of any surge in new construction because new construction has been lagging and they're pulling back because of interest rates. They're at an eight month consecutive month over month decline in confidence, the, the, the home builder confidence score. Meaning they're not really happy of, uh, about the outlook going forward for home sales. So they're just not going to build as much as many, which ends up being this really complex problem. Low inventory, high demand, high interest rates. So will we have 2008? No. Is there going to be a slowdown? Yes. I think it's probably more of a slowdown of transactions. Um, at least, especially temporarily, it'll all reset. We still have high inflation. The biggest winners here, homeowners, whether you're a landlord or owner occupant, do you own a home? Equity has been uh, rising significantly over the past few years. It won't continue at that pace, um, but it, it should still remain strong for the next several years. Um, and if you're a landlord, so will rents. Less buyers means more renters. And there's a lot more renters coming on the market with Gen Z. So um, that, that's where I, I said there's always like black swan events and stuff like that that could throw a wrench in it, you know, if nuclear bombs start going off in Russia or something. <laughs> uh, there's always crazy things that, that could happen. And if someone has credible evidence to the contrary, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to consider it. If, if homes just went on sale like they did in 2008, like, man, I would, that, I mean, I wouldn't be happy for the circumstance, but from an opportunity standpoint, I would absolutely take advantage of it. You just don't see it. Yeah, for sure. I, I love that, you know, you brought that up. Somebody has a, <clears throat> if somebody has a, a opposing evidence that you would love to, to see it, uh, maybe, maybe I can get, maybe I can do like a special episode later where uh, you get two, two guests and then have them debate, debate on that. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I mean, and I'm not, a, not like a data nerd or whatever, but it's just, I, I see reports. I do look at them. Someone else posted a delinquency, mortgage delinquency, and they compared 2020, 2021, and 2022 compared it with 2029. Now the premise of the text above their post was how like there's more delinquencies coming. But I questioned it. I'm like, 2020 through 2022, the delinquency rate has been dropping every single year. And then the 2022 rate compared to 2009 in almost every category is less than half of what it was in 09. I was like, so where, 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 where are you getting, how, how are you making that conclusion? And beyond that, it's institutional investors right now, they've been hoarding their money in real estate. That's been a part of the problem of rapid appreciation you get institutional investors buying up entire subdivisions the build to rent um and i mean it's been happening forever in, in multifamily but now in single family it's scale so i think any slack in inventory they'll gobble it up <laughs> yeah yeah and that's not that's not a good thing if Right. So, I mean, I guess we all have our opinion. No, that, but it isn't, kidding. but it also <laughs> is. Meaning, I don't necessarily, like, I think people should have the ability to buy a home, but ultimately, th these are the cards we're dealt. And if someone's not going to buy it, at the end of it, homeowner, like, like as institutional investors, they're chasing yield. They're trying to protect their money from inflation and make a profit. And yep. right now, real estate has just has one of the best options available to them. They're not investing in tech. 
Um, they're not investing in like VC and all that. So those kind of markets have softened a little bit. Um, stock market's been pretty volatile. So real estate's just a good hedge on that. Yeah, definitely. And um, we'll, we'll see moving forward, right? Because, but, but I mean, I think what you, what you mentioned is very really important because you're looking at data. You're not necessarily looking at emotion where a lot of people are making these, these assumptions based on emotion, what they want to happen, what they don't want to happen. And they're not looking at the data. So like when you're looking at like the inventory rates and then also new new consumers coming to the market, that's kind of what I was mentioning in the very beginning of the podcast when I said you have a really good insight on what's going on in the economy from a macro scale. I think that's that's what I was ta- that was what I was alluding to is a lot of people are kind of just looking at it from their own perspective, you know, maybe as an agent or an investor and you know, how might a crash affect them personally. And, you know, for investors, it could be a positive thing with prices going down. For realtors, it could be a horrible thing with, you know, no longer having the ability to list as many houses. And they're just kind of looking for evidence that will support whatever they want to happen. Of course. Now, realtors, um, to tag on that, like realtors, yeah, it definitely affects them from a listing standpoint or like a sales standpoint. But where they can make up, it's going to be more work, renters. Like they're they're just going to have to focus a little bit more on renters because renters a decent percentage of them will become buyers um so they can help out with that um maybe they also got to diversify too on working like with manufactured homes um home sales or tiny homes or or stuff like that so it, it's a changing market and you just ultimately if you don't change with it you get left behind that's the who moved my cheese story like we just have to adapt because if you get too comfortable which I was there. I was too comfortable with flips. That's why I didn't go over into multifamily mobile home parks, self-storage units when my buddies did. Um, I, I watched. And, um, you know, I, I think I probably should have made a move sooner. Um, but at the end of the day, I was comfortable. That's fine. I mean, I just learn and adapt as it go. Right. Learn to adapt. It's, it's, it's better, in my opinion, to have like skill sets that are overlapping, even overlapping within like like industry, then then it's to just be like very focused on like trying to cap that security. So if you have like skill sets that transcends industries and timelines, I think that's probably the most important asset anybody can yeah. own uh, on top of, you know, own real estate, right? So, yep. Uh, yep. so if you guys listen to this entire podcast here, Chris is clearly a very knowledgeable person in, uh, in investing in business and in the real estate space as well. So we're going to wrap it up with this. And that is your decision to launch invested agents and your decision to join EXP. So just give us kind of like an overview of how that went, why you decided to choose to go with EXP, why uh, the, the specific group of people you went with and what you're doing currently now with invested agents and how you're helping us all, uh, you know, all improve as business owners and entrepreneurs. Yeah, with um with EXP, so I had my license since 2014, 2015. And um you know, and I was with a flat fee brokerage. I didn't need anything from them. I just, I had to choose one. So I went with them. They were good. Um, otherwise, they didn't bother me and I didn't bother them. Um, and then my buddy, Brant Phillips mentioned, um, actually, he invited me over his office to, he was gonna, I knew he was going to pitch me on something. I didn't want to <laughs> go, but I knew he was very successful and he had a really good reputation. And I, I trusted like he wouldn't be wasting my time with like, you know, trying to get me to sign up for like Mary Kay or something. Um, so ultimately that's, that's the only reason why I went. And, um, but 
And then he showed me XP. He was like, hey, look, there's this whole other brokerage. Like you can actually build wealth and passive income while you're running your business. I'm like, that's why I got into real estate was to build wealth and passive income. My license does not help me do that. So if EXP will help me do that while I run my business, it was a no-brainer. Like it was an instant decision. Uh, I say instant, same day. Um, and I didn't know anything else, like all about EXP. It was just blind faith, um, pretty much. But in the background, Brant didn't know this. I'm trying to figure out, like, this goes back to what I mentioned before. I was very focused on single family. I was ignoring all the other distractions. But the problem I was um, I was running against was my margins were shrinking on profits. So on the occasion, if we did have a bad deal, like it was it was more painful than it used to be, just because margins are shrinking. Competition's going up. Home prices are going up. Home sellers are getting more educated. Um, so we're doing less deals. All those kind of things. So. All like 90% of all my income was coming from one source, flipping. And that source was becoming less profitable, therefore more risky. So I had to figure out, I was like, we got to diversify. Like, th this is not fun. Um, it's not as fun as it used to be. So we, we were like, how can we diversify? So we bought an Airbnb. We were trying to buy more rentals. Everything, anything we could to, to insulate us from if we lose the flipping income or if we just have a bad month, like it's not so bad. EXP came right along at the same time. And so that's why it's probably why it made it was such an easy decision for me. It was like, it was an extra income stream. It was multiple income streams all within one brokerage that I could tie into. And I was already thinking about the retail side and I was like, this just makes sense. And beyond that, I mean, I talk to agents all the time. So, and they would always ask, hey, I'm getting my license or whatever. Hey, I'm thinking about changing brokerages. Who would you go with? And I'm like, all right, this brokerage, this brokerage. And no one ever paid me for that referral. Uh, and I didn't care if they did it or not. I was like, well, so we could probably build a team too. Just um, So that, that was the EXP story. And then along the way, um, back to something I said earlier, which was, uh, how can we educate folks? Um, people would always, I've never had any type of paid mentorship or anything, even though we did a lot of events, it was all free. I just wanted to network. If you were a lender or you had a deal that you wanted to, to sell or even buy from us, like I wanted to work with you. So that's why we did everything for free. And it was great. Um, but all these people were like, hey, they wanted more, more. Can we, how can we work with you? Can I take you to lunch? Uh, can, you, can you teach me this, that? So we created invested agents to teach folks how to build wealth and passive income in real estate, specifically uh, real estate investing. And uh, the niche, it's not a hard niche because really it applies to anyone, but um, it's called invested agents just because most agents are the insiders in the industry and they always want to invest, but they never do. And the number one reason is lack of education. The number two reason is lack of money, but that's really an education question um, or an education problem. So ultimately that's how Invest Agents was born. Um, uh, and we really talked about it whenever COVID happened, it gave us, my wife and I time to sit back, think about it. How can we add more value? How can we uh, put up better content? And how can we create coaching and mentorship with folks that really want to learn how to invest or 
and maybe even in the off chance work with us um, directly or, or join our team in EXP, which is growing every month. We have 10, 15 agents joining a month. Um, a lot of those uh, <laughs> through you and, and, and your team. And um, it's, it's been fun. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, now you're two time, two time icon agent. Is that right? Two yeah. Two time. Um, it'll, at least in the near future, that that'll probably be the last time I go for icon. Um, just I'm pulling back on the, on the transactions and moving more on uh, on the fund. Yeah. Um, and uh, really, at this point, you know, most of those leads are going to get deferred out to the team, um, yeah. it, which is fine. It you know makes them really happy, and um, you know, it works out for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, just we were talking about that earlier as well. So. Uh, two-time icon agent and then are you uh, are you at 200 agents now and you're in your total uh your total we, 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 we're close. getting close we're uh, this okay. morning is 90, uh, 195 um okay. yeah 195 we've had 11 join in the past 30 days so yeah yeah it'll be there by the time uh this podcast has been released so chris is an organization of 200 agents uh across <laughs> multiple states and a couple of different countries as well i, I know that personally and, yeah, I um, know. Like, yeah, uh, it, it, we're, we're, we're international now. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. But uh, it's been, it's been great. And, um, you know, I, I had a, I have a really good time uh, just working with you as well on a, uh, on a weekly basis. And in, in the past was more of a, a kind of closer, but now on a weekly basis, and I'm learning so much from you just, just by being around you and being around um, everybody else here who's on our on our, uh, on our team here at EXP and very grateful for you. And um, for those listeners out there who want to reach out to you, want to learn more about what you do, they want to learn more about invested agents, maybe uh, invested equity in the fund as well. Uh, where are some good places that they can reach you? Maybe yeah, you can get your book. Yeah, um, investedx.com. So that's the overall brand site. So that will take you to invested agents or invested equity. You can choose whatever um, options more invest um, more for you invested agents more education invested equity um, for passive investing any social media account you find me on like I, I'm there I'm on Instagram Facebook TikTok YouTube um, publish 10 something pieces of content a day it's pretty <laughs> pretty insane so um, get our newsletter so if you sign up for an event or subscribe to the newsletter um, uh, we send out I should have one coming out here maybe like an hour or so just tidbits once a week um just stuff on the market stuff i see what's going on or share events we've got going on and ultimately that allows for connections with folks like you um like you, you you've been a huge leader on the team but we met indirectly um even though we live in the same city we met through folks that i met in california but they actually live in florida and you got connected with them um, through the uh, social sphere, and uh, uh, it's been it's been cool watching watching you grow. And it's actually a really good um, testament on, on what's possible because um, it, it goes back like I was a twenty one year old knocking on doors trying to see who how I can buy people's houses. Like who's gonna who's really going to work with me? But ultimately, the answer to that is. If you can present a solution and you can do it confidently, people will work with you. They just, they just, they want results. And you've been able to demonstrate that too. Um, someone who's young, like how can you build a team as a real estate agent if you're 18 years old or now 21 years old? Like, I mean, if you can produce results and help people get what they want, like you can do anything. So um, that's been awesome to watch. 
Uh, thank you, Chris. And it's, it's been awesome to be a part of as well. And uh, it's been a, it's been a great ride. I can't wait to to grow the team even more and uh, and see where see where this goes. Cause I'm I'm super excited about it. But yeah, guys, I mean, if you guys are listening to this, uh, definitely reach out to Chris. He has a lot of information. Uh, find out more about invested agents, uh, invested equity. If you're a private investor. And uh, there's a lot of free information. So Chris likes to give out free information on a social media platform. So definitely check him out on all uh, your social media platform of choice. And um, before we wrap up, uh, is there any any last thoughts you want to leave with the, with the listeners? No, um, just, I mean, if you do connect with me on social media, I respond to all messages. Um, if for some reason I don't, maybe it went over into spam. So uh, sorry, but uh, if, if I do see it and it doesn't work spam, I, I do get back with you. Okay. Yeah. That's very, that's very generous of you, Chris, and you're a busy person. So um, guys, I uh, hope you enjoy this episode of the Free Life Agents podcast. Uh, if you guys are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, make sure to give it a rating and a review and to make sure you save, subscribe, download wherever you might be watching or listening to this podcast on. And if you guys didn't know, we are, uh, we are a video podcast now on Spotify. So you can watch this uh, on video, uh, but only on Spotify only for the, for the full interview. So Chris, thank you again for, uh, for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate you for everything that you've done, not just not just with this interview, but uh, for me and the team as well. And for the listeners tuning in, thank you for tuning in and I will see you guys next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Free Life Agents Podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.freelifeagents.com. We'll see you next time.